Thank you for joining us for another edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, John Lauk. Today's broadcast is produced by Dana Brown. Our guest today is Christopher Phillips. Christopher is the head of the Department of History at the University of Cincinnati and a professor of history at the University of Cincinnati in Cincinnati, Ohio. Today we are going to be talking about Christopher's new book entitled The Rivers Ran Backward, The Civil War and the Remaking of the American Middle Border. This book is published by Oxford University Press and it was named the best book of the year by Civil War Monitor and it won the annual book award from the Ohio Academy of History. Welcome to the show, Chris. Glad to be here, John. Well, Chris, let's jump right in. Why don't you tell us uh, what you argue in your book about the impact of the Civil War on regional consciousness in both the Midwest and the South? Well, I think um, it's a complicated question, but I think the Civil War has a lasting impact in how we see one another if we're from what could um, traditionally be called the American heartland, or at least something uh, that uh, it's been called in the 20th century. Um, I argue that um, up until the Civil War, there was what I call a Western consensus, um, particularly over the issue of slavery, but also cultural and um, to some degree political, um, certainly racial and uh, uh, a congruent racial attitude uh, among white Westerners. And when I use the word the West, I'm using it in the way that they used it in the 19th century, meaning people living uh, west of the Appalachian Mountains, uh, as far as settlement uh, had moved at any particular point. They certainly understood themselves as Westerners, and by understanding themselves in a certain way, there was a, a consensus of opinion on a number of things that were was far less divisive than it was uh, um, uh, harmonizing. And uh, that was on either side of what we would call the... Um, uh, the, the today, the north-south divide that is the Ohio River, and extended westward along the Missouri River. Um, these folks really, by family connections, by economy, um, by uh, very congruent views, they really saw things more alike than they did different. Uh, more than anything else, these Westerners saw themselves as distinct from people farther east on the other side of the Appalachian Mountains. <clears throat> and that changed dramatically. Um, uh, with the war, um, what I argue is that national tensions were uh, muted in the region far more than I think we appreciate. Uh, it really took the war to uh, blow that apart and to bring people into a very different view of themselves, and uh, that was predominantly um, a product of the political divisions uh, during the war and obviously of the experience of the war itself. Um, and then during that war, there's a lot of this that sorts out, where people begin to uh, look at themselves quite differently uh, than they had before. Someone in Kentucky was seen by someone in Ohio as, as a, a different entity than, uh, than they might have recognized them before because of these pressures that the war brought on. Brought on. And of course, in particular, the, the violence of that war. A violence that was widespread. Um, and that violence was not just between uh, those that supported the Confederacy and those who didn't. There was also tremendous violence between those who were trying, in some sense, to stay 
neutral or in between the, the uh, belligerents in the war. And um, those hard feelings and those antagonisms um, uh, divide them deeply um, into what I call communities of allegiance that then persist in the aftermath of that war as the, uh, the war enmities lingered on and then took on different forms. And ultimately what I argue is that uh, this is when we start to see the emergence of a, of, of a divided culture in the region that would ultimately result in, uh, in differing identities, uh, northern for some, southern for others, and then ultimately midwestern for others. Uh, and by doing all of this and, and experiencing all of this, people who lived in this, what I call the middle border or the heartland area, um, will actually redefine the region or the area that they live in based upon their uh, political identities and their cultural politics. Um, and, and by doing all of that, the West that once uh, was the defining motif of this particular place was pushed uh, off the West, far beyond even the plains, uh, beyond the Rocky Mountains. Uh, and it's only then that we begin see the emergence of our modern regionalism as we understand it. The great irony, of course, is by putting uh, these regional identities with the American construct, American nationalism was actually achieved, um, where you've got these antagonisms uh, that are subsumed within the American um, consciousness. And, uh, nationalism is a, a product to some degree of politics, of cultural politics and of regional politics. Chris, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, your argument that there were fewer divisions between the regions prior to the Civil War than perhaps is conventionally thought. Uh, I'm thinking in particular about some of the books, just to take an example, about Indiana that I've read, where they, where the authors highlight the rather... Uh, bitter clashes between northern-oriented Yankees who settled the northern part of Indiana and the clashes with the southern-oriented settlers of southern Indiana who were mostly upland, southern-born uh, uh, people. And these books have argued that there was a cultural clash between these groups and that one could see the, the seeds, at least, of a budding regional divide between these groups. How do you figure these books, or how do these books or these arguments figure into your broader argument? Well, I don't disagree with them entirely. There were cultural clashes. Uh, there's plenty of evidence of those sorts of things, but they were late coming, uh, meaning that the northern parts of these states were settled far later than the southern parts. And the southern parts that had been settled had been settled by uh, people who'd come from a, what um, some historians call an upland culture, uh, coming from places that maybe uh, uh, weren't the plantation areas or the, uh, or the large slaveholding areas of, of many of these um, mother states, I guess you could say. Um, those sorts of things between neighbors were real, but there were ways of harmonizing around them that didn't um, um, toxically divide these states for a very long time. And part of that was accomplished by the fact that um, some of those, what one might call um, southern-oriented um, cultures that, that move in, uh, came first, 
and they dominated the politics for a very long time. Uh, and by dominating the politics, they actually accomplished something of a, um, um, uh, a harmonization of uh, potential racial uh, animosities. There was a general sense uh, in these states that will emerge and it will be um, held on to for a very long time in most of them. That um, African-Americans, uh, if, if you're talking about north of the river, African-Americans were really um, kind of a foreign element. They weren't supposed to be part of this, what was widely referred to as a white man's country. Uh, and that's a, a, a more congruent view, even among those who had come from um, uh, cultures that we might uh, later see as uh, where abolitionism and the, and the anti-slavery movements uh, originate. Um, for a very long time in the West, this is a place that tries to avoid those sort of sexual, sectional tensions. And they, um, if not, they certainly understand the, the cultural clashes, but they manage to overcome them in many ways. And so what I'm arguing is, is that sectionalism um, comes to the West in uh, later forms. It is not as uh, explosive as it, um, as it becomes farther East. Uh, and this is a place that in many ways, because of its um, shared commercial interests and, uh, and also um, a, a sort of tradition of accommodating uh, slavery um, where it existed, um, it isn't until uh, well into the 1850s that you start to see these tensions beginning to um, do more than smolder. Uh, they become part of the, the fabric of a dividing region. Could you talk a little bit about who it was that was outside of the uh, consensus that you are describing? And I'm thinking in particular about some of the Yankee reformers who were also abolitionists. I'm thinking about some of the Quakers who were quite active in central Ohio and central Indiana. They seem to be the major dissenters in terms of uh, what the racial politics of these states were, if I understand your argument. They certainly were the first dissenters. Um, uh, and the Quakers, of course, um, infiltrate much of the West. Uh, they settle in, uh, in enclaves uh, in, in a number of these, um, of these states. And they, um, they do uh, try to counteract the, um, what they consider the pernicious influence of slavery in the nation. But they also were met with, with very strong opinions by those who had settled these regions, not just, uh, or these states, not just those who had come from the, uh, from the traditional slave states. We have to remind ourselves that all of the colonies that, uh, that would um, have these out-migrations were slave states or colonies at one point. Uh, and a number of them were very slow to get rid of slavery. Uh, I mean, we're, we're seeing the persistence of slavery in states like New York and Pennsylvania and New Jersey far longer than I think that we, are, we commonly assume. And then we see the uh, replication of some of that in states that supposedly had slavery um, uh, outlawed by the Northwest Ordinance, but found, particularly in the case of Illinois, found loopholes around that well into the antebellum period. Those um, Quakers... Um, of course, were um, uh, approached slavery in a very different manner than the the next great um, uh, movement of those who were opposing slavery, and those would be the abolitionists. And the abolitionists, of course, take a very different approach. Rather than using moral suasion, uh, they use uh, moral force, and that is what many white Westerners objected to. 
They objected to the moralizing. They objected to um, uh, to the idea that the federal government, uh, one that Westerners generally distrusted and certainly in a general sense wanted to keep uh, as a small government, um, they objected to the idea, many objected to the idea that the abolitionists would want to expand that power. Um, by taking on slavery as a as a national or a or a government um, um, uh, issue, and so um, it is in this region that we see some of the uh, the most celebrated movements against um, uh, abolitionism in the in the in the uh, uh, here in Cincinnati, say for example, the Blaine Seminary issue uh, that literally um, convulsed. Uh, the city of Cincinnati, and then had uh, the Lane debates, as they were known, would lead to a lot of these um, students walking out and, and going to the northern part of Ohio, where uh, it had been settled more by those Yankees, and they created Oberlin College. Um, of course, the most celebrated incident was the, um, um, was the murder of Elijah Lovejoy in Alton, Illinois, for publishing an anti, uh, for an abolitionist newspaper there. I happen to have grown up in the home county of his brother, Owen Lovejoy. Uh, the great irony of, of this story and, and, and my family heritage is that um, we've got, um, the Phillipses were, um, um, were pro-slavery. Uh, Kentuckians who left in the early 20th century and and uh, and moved into the home county of the most celebrated abolitionist uh, in uh, Antebellum, um, Illinois, saved his brother Elijah. Um, and it, and uh, Owen Lovejoy's home is still open. It's uh, it's it was a stop on the Underground Railroad, and he was very active uh, in the U.S. Congress uh, as well as the Illinois legislature in trying to end slavery in the state, and was very well known. Uh, to Abraham Lincoln. And so we have these kind of dual stories that come out of places like my own home county and my own home state that in many ways um, circle back to the, um, to the divided response to, the, to people like Lovejoy who had come from New England and who um, ardently opposed the institution of slavery as it existed in Illinois right up until 1850 when the Supreme Court, by one vote, uh, officially ended it. You mentioned Oberlin College. There is a new book out in the last year or two describing the role of Oberlin College in Ohio in the efforts to promote abolitionism in the Midwest. That is a, a, a very interesting read for our listeners who want to delve more deeply into that story. Uh, and Oberlin became a national symbol. It certainly became a regional symbol of what abolitionists had in mind uh, for the nation, because it not only became the first biracial, but also the first co-educational institution in the United States. We are joined today by Christopher Phillips, who is the chair of the history department at the University of Cincinnati. We are discussing his new book, The Rivers Ran Backward, The Civil War and the Remaking of the American Middle Border, published by Oxford University Press last year. Uh, Chris, in your book, you argue that slavery was less a dividing issue among antebellum white Westerners than wartime and post-war emancipation. Uh, can you tell us what you mean by that? Well, um, because the West was a place that had traditionally accommodated slavery for racial and other reasons, economic reasons, um, these Westerners found themselves, uh, when the war came, um, fairly um, confident 
that the war was really one uh, that would restore the Union. And many Western soldiers in particular signed up, uh, and believe me, uh, many, many volunteers uh, from all of these states, uh, with the exception perhaps of, of those south of the, of the rivers, Missouri and Kentucky. But Illinois and Indiana and Ohio sent um, huge contingents of soldiers. Uh, I think they're ranked like third, fourth, and fifth or something like that of all of the states in the Union. Uh, and so there was no question that there, there was a deep patriotism. Uh, both in the northern sections of these states and in the southern sections as well. Um, but they believed uh, largely that this was a war that would um, that really had nothing to do or little to do with slavery. Uh, but there was great anxiety that they would be wrong about this. Uh, and so you find a number of these soldiers that are articulating this, why they're fighting and, and to restore the greatest government uh, on earth and, and, and those sorts of rationales. Um, and then when the war does change to one that ultimately will end slavery, um, and not only uh, from sort of outside uh, looking in, meaning that, that some Easterners were accomplishing this, but by one of their own, Abraham Lincoln, um, there is a tremendous response in this region. Um, uh, Lincoln issues his Emancipation Proclamation in uh, late September of 1862, uh, and he will face state elections within weeks of this uh, um, announcement. And uh, in all of these states, even in his home state of Illinois, there is a an, an immediate negative response in the form of many, many more Democrats will be elected to the state and to the national uh, congresses um, and legislatures. As a result of this, um, one of the great questions I had was, why would Lincoln um, risk that by issuing the proclamation ahead of those elections? And I think in some sense it's because Lincoln recognized that if he didn't, it would delegitimate um, the proclamation when it came out, meaning that it was uh, for political purposes only. Nonetheless, he faced a real backlash in these states, and that backlash will continue uh, in many of them, as we see uh, dissent ramping up, uh, the Copperheads, as they were known, uh, uh, see their epicenter in these states, uh, in particular Indiana. Um, you also see uh, Democrats, uh, Democratic legislatures now in the states of Illinois and Indiana trying to obstruct their Republican governors uh, in trying to accomplish uh, anything that would support the war, uh, right down to um, uh, trying not to fund any uh, military appropriations bills. That causes both of those governors to effectively um, dismiss, or prorogue as it's known, um, uh, little known term, um, to uh, in order to run the war effort from those states. Uh, all of this uh, sort of swirls around the issue of emancipation, and we'll find its um, uh, we'll find its, its uh, height in the um, uh, during the 1864 election when uh, Lincoln is running for re-election. We see the states of um, Illinois and Indiana uh, retaining their anti-black immigration laws uh, during the war. They will not undo them until after the war is over, partly because they're in control of Democratic legislatures until that election of 1864 and then uh, the, the beginning of 1865 when they actually are seated. Now you have all of these things that are causing Lincoln great anxiety, and they continue and persist into the post-war uh, with, again, very divided responses to the Reconstruction Amendments in these states. 
for example, the state of Illinois, um, or I'm sorry, the state of uh, Ohio, will um, uh, ratify the 13th Amendment that frees slaves. It will um, initially ratify the 14th Amendment, and then when a Democratic legislature takes over, they rescind uh, that, that ratification, and then it will not ratify the 15th Amendment, which allows African Americans voting rights. All of these are kind of signals that, uh, at least in these free states um, that are today known as Midwestern states, uh, that the politics of race and of emancipation uh, roiled the population far more than the politics of slavery had prior to the war. Let's go back to something you said a couple of minutes ago, Chris, about the high level of participation among service-age men in these Midwestern states in terms of signing up to go fight in the war. I have a vague recollection, and you would know this better, but I have a vague recollection that the highest participation rate in terms of wartime service was Indiana. That is correct. Which is a bit surprising to me, just uh, off the cuff, because Indiana has a reputation as being the most southern Midwestern state, and one would guess that participation would be lower in Indiana. Can you shed some light on this uh, dilemma or this paradox? Well, again, it goes back, I think, to the fact that they were fighting predominantly for the Union and to preserve the Union, uh, and certainly not to end slavery. Um, And there is tremendous backlash among the Western um, um, uh, armies uh, to emancipation, enough so that we have a number of regiments uh, uh, that disband effectively uh, because of it, certainly in southern Illinois. Um, We have uh, many officers who submit their resignations. Uh, We have uh, an immediate uptick in desertions uh, throughout the uh, remainder of the war. Uh, Many people who fell in many ways from these states that the the war had changed to one that they could no longer support. we have uh, we have an, an entire military roiled by the um, the sudden emergence of these copperheads who are riding back and forth. Um, in in some sense, the soldiers themselves, in their participations, were able to carp- compartmentalize uh, these issues initially. And then uh, one of the great ironies, and, and good historians like James McPherson have have shown that um, soldiers debated. Uh, deeply debated um, the merits of emancipation versus its cost. And what uh, a great many soldiers decided, uh, particularly Democratic ones, decided was that in the end, what they had witnessed when they moved south into, into states like Kentucky and Tennessee um, uh, prior to emancipation, what they witnessed there um, confirmed what many of them had believed for a long time, that there was a slave power that itself was um, um, bleeding the nation uh, from what it could potentially be if slavery didn't exist. And they found themselves persuaded by the idea that slavery, um, or should I say ending slavery in those Confederate states, would actually end the war more quickly and it would punish those slaveholders more fully for bringing the war on. And so you see a lot of these very moderate soldiers who don't believe initially that emancipation should have been made part of the war. Um, in their own politics, 
um, in their debates over campfires and, and in their messes. Um, they came to an understanding that even though they did not agree with it, a large percentage of them felt that it would actually benefit the war effort if slavery were um, undone. Uh, now, they didn't necessarily see the end of the war with the 13th Amendment, but they had a sense of what was, uh, what was to come. And they felt that for, a mil for military measures, that it would be better to just do that rather than to have the entire war effort erode by those copperheads behind the lines who were doing everything they could to uh, unelect the, the, the supporters of emancipation. This high level of participation uh, in the war effort in terms of serving in the military from states like Indiana and uh, Michigan and Wisconsin and all these Midwestern states actually had the highest levels of participation in the war. You, just to be clear about this, you attribute this to the high levels of nationalism in the Midwest and the support for the Union. Am I understanding that right? Indeed, yes, I do. Um, these people are very patriotic in their own ways. And, of course, they, they become patriotic in some ways, and they, and they maintain that level of national fervor and national uh, spirit, uh, in part because, as Westerners, they have traditionally believed that their, what, their liberties are best served by um, the, the nation expanding and by their region being sort of the leaders in the, the democratic ethos that America embodies. And so they have a very strong feeling about this, but it's not, uh, it's, it, it's not an unconditional feeling. Um, for many people in this region, despite their support for the war effort, they found that as the war progressed and as they're um, in many communities, as they watched their social fabric erode under the pressures of the war, um, there are a number of people that begin to question uh, the leadership, particular question, the Republican Party. And so it is the Republican Party, in some sense, that's probably um, uh, a more divisive force in their uh, many communities uh, during that war, uh, particularly traditional Democratic communities. The Republican Party seems to them to be almost a warmongering party. And so those pressures um, uh, exert themselves as the war goes on, and they will persist into the post-war in very bitter local um, elections and contests between neighbors in which it was very apparent that the aftermath of the war would um, extend these wartime enmities, particularly between Republicans and non-Republicans. Uh, and so the term copperhead becomes uh, something that's thrown at anyone. Um, uh, in the Democratic Party, whether they had supported the war or not. And the Democrats, of course, were, were deeply divided over that war into factions that were generally known as war Democrats who supported the war effort but didn't necessarily support emancipation. And peace Democrats, like Clement Valendigam from Ohio, uh, who was, like so many of, of, of that faction, simply wanted the war to end as quickly as possible, even if that meant suing for peace with the Confederacy. Um, so in the aftermath of the war, these enmities uh, between neighbors, between family members, um, see a, a, a surprising amount of, um, of disruption that persists for decades after the war. You are listening to Heartland History. Our guest today is Christopher Phillips, a professor of history at the University of Cincinnati. We are discussing his new book entitled 
The Rivers Ran Backwards. It is published by Oxford University Press. Chris, uh, listening to your comments today and reading your book the last few weeks, I am reminded of one of our more recent guests, Stephen Hahn of New York University, who has published a major book about 19th century America in which he makes the argument that we should think about the West as a region prior to the Civil War. Uh, Stephen Hahn's book is uh, closely aligned, I think, with a recent book by Adam Aronson about St. Louis, which makes uh, a similar argument. Do you think that there's something going on in the historiography, a turn to the West or a greater emphasis on the West? Or how would you describe this confluence of books? I hope that's the case, John, uh, because that was kind of the whole point of writing the book. Um, I was raised in the Midwest, and uh, the rural Midwest, actually, and uh, and went south for my for my graduate training. And uh, I was actually uh, struck by how um, the um, the national interpretations seem to be largely aligned with a with a binary between North, meaning. Uh, Emancipationist um, interpretation of, of the of the nation, and South meaning pro-slavery, and what I found is that the West seemed to defy both of these categorizations, um, uh, and that it had been effectively buried uh, for a very long time. Um, that Frederick Jackson Turner was taught in every uh, graduate seminar that uh, that one could think of on early America, and yet it's almost as if once the frontier. Uh, was settled that the nation became the North and the South. And I found that that just didn't seem to be the case, that the West was a place that was far more fluid, a place that in many ways, um, uh, in a ternarian way, uh, influenced the rest of the nation and at the same time uh, resisted the polarization uh, over slavery and otherwise that the rest of the nation was, was undergoing. And I found that there was another narrative that just didn't seem to be told, particularly in the Civil War, but also in terms of our understanding of our national culture. And that I thought that the West, in some sense, had been overlooked. And so I think that Steve and Adam's books both uh, coincide with what I was trying to, in a more fine-grained way, uh, trying to establish in this broad uh, stretch of the American continent, uh, a place that, uh, that fit and didn't fit at the same time this national binary. Chris, you mentioned that you grew up in the rural Midwest. Tell us where and tell us uh, what that was like. I'm from a little town uh, uh, named Sheffield, Illinois, uh, named for an early uh, railroad magnate that actually um, um, helped to build the Rock Island Railroad. Um, I'm in a, a part of the of the uh, uh, of Illinois that uh, would be considered the downstate. Very small town, a thousand people then, a thousand people now. Um, pretty much a Norman Rockwell existence. My parents still live in the home I was raised in and, and alive and well and in the same town. Um, and a place in many ways that uh, when I was growing up, I didn't seem to have a full appreciation of the, um, uh, of the, of the uniqueness of its culture. Uh, also, I didn't have a full appreciation of the of complications of its history. Uh, but I did have a very good sense growing up of uh, that this was a place that wasn't Chicago. 
uh, and it's at the tip end of a, a, a subregion of Illinois that, uh, that called itself during the 60s and 70s Forgottonia, uh, meaning it's been forgotten by all of the, uh, the government leaders in Springfield and by the business people in Chicago, um, a place that in many ways uh, coincided, ironically, with what I found to be uh, a part of Illinois that uh, along the Mississippi River and some of its tributaries where there had been a surprising amount of uh, what we would maybe call southern influences that had come up by the rivers. And so it's no surprise that this is a place that, um, uh, in my uh, reckoning, um, held very strongly to a sort of anti-centralization uh, uh, area or, 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 or beliefs, uh, a place that was, uh, you know, would have been very much aligned with uh, populist mentalities and um, clearly a place that, um, that saw itself as distinct from, uh, um, from other parts of the Midwest, particularly the upper parts of it. I was recently reading uh, a biography of Edgar Lee Masters, who was from a town, I'm sure, in, in Forgottonia somewhere. I forget the name of it. But Petersburg, what, I think, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. Lewisburg, is that what you said? Uh, Petersburg. Oh, Petersburg. Um, but Or maybe in the book they were talking about him comparing Petersburg and Lewis Tun. Or, or something like that. But what I took away from it, and this speaks to um, the what you're talking about here, is that I assumed Edgar Lee Masters, when he grew up in rural Illinois or small-town Illinois, would have been a typical Midwestern Republican from that era. And instead, he was uh, a very strong Democrat, he hated Abraham Lincoln. In fact, he wrote an entire biography of Lincoln attacking Lincoln as a centralizer, as someone who promoted monopolies and was in bed with the big banks. And uh, But this, this sort of speaks to this subculture of downstate Illinois that you, you are describing. Absolutely right. Uh, and, you know, Spoon River, River Anthology is, is in many ways a a paean to uh, to um, uh, independent, uh, individualist, small town, uh, small town life in a place that um, that uh, tried as best it could to uh, take from the modernization that was going on around it what it what it wished for and to retain what one would uh, in a in a former uh, former century would have regarded as the essence of westernness and that is independence uh, and individualism. Lastly, Chris, I would like to ask you to sum up for us what the long-term consequences of the Civil War was for regional identity, especially in the Midwest. Uh, in the subsequent 30 and 40 years after the Civil War, what did this experience mean for the formation of a more solid uh, Midwestern identity? Well, there are two things at work, and they're, they're uh, mutually exclusive. Uh, on the one hand, uh, in the states that had been former slave states um, uh, during the war, uh, Missouri and Kentucky, we have the emergence of, and actually we have the, the forerunner of what will become the lost cause mythology uh, throughout the South except um, they, they did it in a slightly different way, but this is a region that will 
uh, politically and culturally define itself as distinct um, from from the states that neighbored them that had been free states during the war and had uh, uh, in many ways been seen as adversaries um, as being what uh, later became known as the border south uh, a place that would um, uh, that would celebrate its its uh, its former slaveholding culture, uh, would rename its former farms into plantations, and would in many ways um, strike a tone, uh, defiant tone, uh, through Reconstruction and beyond, that it would do all that it could to align itself with the emergent Solid South. Uh, and so Kentucky and Democrat, uh, Kentucky and 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 Missouri became very democratic places that celebrated their Southern and their Confederate heritage, despite the fact that neither state uh, had um, officially aligned themselves with the Confederacy and slaveholding was far smaller than in many other states farther south. But be that as it may, uh, north of the river, there's a a more contested emergence. Uh, You have uh, a victory narrative that will celebrate the uh, the triumphs of these states as being fully unionized and that would uh, unionized meaning uh, supportive of the federal government and the federal uh, the federal war effort uh, and would celebrate its victors in the forms of Ulysses Grant and William T. Sherman and uh, Philip Sheridan, all of whom hailed from Ohio. Um, and what is what is lost in that is uh, is the very real and very defining dissent that emerges in these states during the war in the form of uh, not just copperheads, but also war Democrats uh, who are opposed to the um, the transformation of the war into one for the liberation of slaves. And out of that, and out of the, the, the very real and very divisive um, politics that, that uh, persists from that, we actually see uh, a reassertion of very traditionalist uh, um, uh, stances on on race uh, and on traditionalism um, in the rural areas of these states uh, almost aligns to some degree with what was occurring south of the rivers in the suppression of African Americans. In 1864, we have the first incident of what um, historians now call racial cleansing in the United States in Washington County, Indiana, in which uh, prior to the election of 1864, uh, white residents drove out or killed its entire African-American population. Um, and this, uh, the county of Washington today is still one that uh, has a very, very minuscule black population. Um, we see those kinds of, of, of uh, uh, things consolidating in the emergence of the Ku Klux Klan that would, by the 1920s, be strongest in Indiana than anywhere else, but also across the middle regions of these states. Um, and to, to counter that, and that very negative uh, image of, of uh, what was happening in the rural parts of these states, a number of progressive editors recognized that they have to um, uh, create a narrative that, um, uh, that actually um, promotes the wholesomeness of uh, the rural areas of the mid- West, uh, or what becomes the Midwest, because that's the term that's been applied to it. Uh, the Midwest is a place of traditional values, but it's also progressive ideas and, and wholesome communities and strong small towns and, and all of these things in, in a way of kind of obscuring the very 
harsh realities of what what's happening in many of those towns than the wholesale subscription to some of these populist um, movements like the like the Klan. Um, whereupon, uh, in the cities, the emergent cities of this region, we have a different um, tag that's being applied. Uh, one that actually predates the Midwest, uh, the Middle West. Uh, one that um, the cities tend to uh, align themselves with. One that that celebrates the um, uh, the modernization that, in many ways, the Northern victory ushered in to places like Chicago uh, and, to some degree, Indianapolis and Cleveland. Uh, left behind, of course, are the cities down farther south on the rivers. Um, uh, like Cincinnati, that uh, continue to have very divided um, views of, of of their own place within this region. Um, we really see a, a, a modern understanding of ourselves as Americans that, um, in sometimes imperceptible ways, go back to um, to the reconciliation or the irreconciliation of that war in small towns and in rural areas and in cities throughout uh, this region. The Midwest, in many ways, is, a, is an ideal that's anything but an absence of region. It's really, in many ways, a recognition of a, a divided region during and after that war. You have been listening to Heartland History. Our guest today has been Christopher Phillips, who is the head of the Department of History at the University of Cincinnati. Chris is the author of the recent book published by Oxford University Press entitled The Rivers Ran Backward, The Civil War and the Remaking of the American Middle Border. I'm John Lauk, your host. Today's episode was produced by Dana Brown. Thank you again, Chris, for joining us, and please come back, come back again. It was my pleasure, John. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time. <laughs>